This is the Journal of American History podcast for September 2014. My name is Stephen Andrews, Managing Editor of the Journal of American History. With me today is Christopher J. Phillips, Assistant Professor and Faculty Fellow at the NYU Gallatin School of Individualized Study, and he will soon take up a position at Carnegie Mellon. He's with us to discuss his article, The New Math and Mid-Century American Politics, that appeared in the September 2014 issue of the Journal of American History. He is also the author of the forthcoming book, The New Math, A Political History. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, as a, as a kid who went to elementary school in the 1970s and experienced the new math, and then uh, now as a parent of a child who's just entering kindergarten, when I first read your article, I was just really blown away by how much the new math resonated with me and how little I knew academically about the new math. What is it that, uh, that drew you to, to writing about this? Well, I think you're right. It's one of those moments in American history that almost everyone knows about, but very little has been written about, at least historically. Certainly people who are interested in the history of curriculum reforms know about it, but it's just not something that's really been a sustained interest of historians. I got into it actually from a kind of oblique angle in some ways, which is that I've long been interested in moments when People claim that learning mathematics or learning science is good for reasons other than learning mathematics and learning science. Right. And this is, this is an old, old, old idea, whether you're talking about ancient Greek geometry all the way up to something like the American SAT, where somehow certain subjects, mathematics in particular, are said to be good for the mind. They're disciplines that discipline the mind. And so those are the moments I've always been interested in. And the new math is absolutely one of those moments where learning mathematics becomes about a lot more than just which facts or which theories or which techniques are you going to learn. Well, I mean, one of the questions we had in-house, I was reading this, I read this essay, I read your article with, a, with another much younger scholar, and they said, well, what, what is the new math? And, and so for, for some of our listeners who may be, they might know the idea, they might know the words, what was this new math and, and what was the old math that it was reacting against? Well, the first thing to say is that there really is no such thing as the new math. In fact, it was a shorthand phrase that referred to a wide variety of sometimes quite divergent programs in the 1950s and 1960s meant to revolutionize the way students learned mathematics. So it became shorthand for the new mathematics curricula, largely. And, and one of the things that a lot of these groups had in common is that they were responding to the idea that maybe more of a fear than an actual practice, but they're responding to the idea that mathematics was taught as a set of facts and memorized exercises. And so it was about drilling and regurgitation and memorization, and that whatever mathematics was, surely that wasn't what mathematics was all about. And so although their pedagogical approaches diverged substantially, most new math writers and certainly new math funders believed that mathematics ought to be taught in a different way. And perhaps the easiest and most famous example of this is the use of set theory or set theoretic notions. And that's the idea that instead of thinking of four plus three as something you do with numerals, that you do with those markings on a page or that you do with rocks or that you do with your fingers, four plus three is actually a statement about joining sets together. It's a statement in general about the mathematics and the logical relationships of sets. And there are lots of other examples as well. There are different bases. So instead of using decimal base system, the familiar base 10, you can use other kinds of bases. You, you see new math pop up in all kinds of other, other ways. But the basic idea is that we need to teach students a way to think of mathematics as logical, but also as creative, as an investigation, as a set of relationships that's much more powerful and much more important than, say, a set of facts to be memorized. I remember my own experience of like 
boy, I think it must have been fifth fifth grade maybe the base 13 coming up and and these kind of <laughs> ideas of like what was it what did it mean to count in base 7 and that and it was revolutionary uh so i, I, I so we now are, we have a, our time period kind of like you know 50s 60s where this is coming out who's leading this push well that's a good question it's the part of the new math that i focus mainly on is the part that is called the school mathematics study group and that's mainly led by mathematicians. And the reason why it's led by mathematicians is historically quite important and interesting. And that is when Congress, when the National Science Foundation started to push the development of curriculum, they did not want educators to be in charge. They wanted scientists and mathematicians to be in charge. And so the new math is also part of a general push in many different fields where congressional public taxpayer money was available, but it was available only to subject matter experts, not mm. to so-called educationists. And so the money for a lot of the development in mathematics textbook reform in this period was funneled through professional mathematicians and professional mathematicians organizations. Now, unlike some other curriculum programs, most famously in, say, physics and biology, the mathematicians were very, very careful, at least in the school mathematics study group, to always involve teachers, to always involve administrators, people who have made their career out of teaching children. And so it was a collaborative from the very beginning, but certainly the history for groups like SMSG, the school mathematics study group, was fundamentally related to an effort to put mathematicians in charge. Uh, one, that seems so interesting given the kind of like decentralized system we have. I mean, is this, is this a recipe for disaster when the federal government kind of gets involved with, you know, with the whole network of local school boards and, and, and those kinds of how – did, how did they play together? Well, in some ways, it's a solution to that problem, which is that the federal government couldn't actually mandate what went on in classrooms. But what they could do is provide money for textbooks, and then school districts could choose whether or not to adopt those textbooks. And so in some ways, it was a, it was a way around the locally controlled school system or education system in the United States. And so by paying for mathematicians, by paying the salary of mathematicians to develop textbooks in, alongside teachers, what they could do is then promote the textbooks, but say that each district made its own decisions about which textbooks to use. Right. Now, the, of course, they, in order to get people to use these new textbooks, they had to provide training for the teachers. And indeed, uh, over the course of the early 1960s, there are many, many National Science Foundation teacher training institutes. And the whole purpose of these is to acquaint teachers with the new textbooks and, and how to use them and, and why they should use them and the mathematics behind them. And in fact, one of the problems with the new math as it goes on is that the money for the teacher training never keeps pace with the adoption of textbooks in the districts. But certainly at the beginning, it was acknowledged to be a, a solution to the problem of having this decentralized educational system. Why do you think the federal government cares so much? I mean, this does seem to be a new development. So wh why are they invested at this particular moment? Um, and, and again, as you said, not just in math, but in other things. What's, what's driving this if, if, if it's from – if one of the changes is a federal uh, intervention – even as, you know, as gradual or, and as kind of fractured as it may be. What's pushing it? In large part, it's an attempt to win the so-called Cold War of the classrooms, that uh -huh. it's a belief that in the late 1950s, one of the ways in which we could be falling behind in the Cold War is that the Soviets could simply have more technically trained individuals, better educated individuals. And the problem, at least insofar as members of Congress saw it, was that we have a free system of government. We have a system of government where people can choose what to take. People can choose what career they end up in. And so how do you spur an, uh, a group of young people, say, to become educated in such a way that they can fight the Cold War, the Cold War of the classrooms or the Cold War of the mind, and show that, in fact, the United States was superior. And so in, within congressional maneuvering and, and machinations, you get all kinds of hand-wringing about the state of public education.
And so in an ironic twist to the way most people who are familiar with the new math, it is actually a conservative response to the belief that progressives had ruined American education over the course of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And so the new math was part of an initiative that congressional funders undertook in order to make education more rigorous by putting mathematicians in charge of it. So by and large, it was conservative response by cold warriors and, of course, some people pushing reform who opportunistically took the moment to push their long-held beliefs about educational reform. But the money came about largely because of this Cold War moment and largely after Sputnik, although the curriculum reform certainly started before the launch of the satellite. But the big money came after the launch of the satellite in 1957. Yeah, you mentioned that. And one of the things I thought and about this moment was how whether Europe seemed to be a, a, a touchstone, a comparison point. You know, t- today we are looking with envy at Finland, it seems like, every time that we talk about who mm-hmm. is, has the good educational system. And, and I, I remember a line that you quoted from, from Lawrence Crimin when he says, you know, after Sputnik, the the public blamed the schools, not realizing that the only thing that had been proved as the quip went at the time was that their German scientists had gotten ahead of our German scientists. And, and I wonder whether there's this moment, right, that there's that part of the war is going to be won by the fact that we have people like von Braun or these other figures who are, are German figures here. And is there a hope that a sense that if we can't, we can't, plan on going back to Germany and stealing another group of scientists that we have to produce them at home? I've never heard it put quite that bluntly. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, uh, there, there was a widespread fear that Soviet education was better at producing scientists than American education. So I've, I've read very few comparisons with Europe. Um, it's certainly in the early 1950s, where in general, the belief is that European scientific institutions are way behind both the Soviets and the United States, even though historically, of course, European mathematics and science has been the envy of, of most North Americans. So I think you're, you're right that there absolutely is a comparative aspect, but the comparison is almost entirely in what I can find with, with the Soviet Union. Um, and so when they say the German scientists, it's the Soviet Union's German scientists versus the United States German scientists is, is the comparison point. But it is certainly an important idea that this is a period where the fear that falling behind in elementary mathematics or high school physics had a direct consequence in techno-scientific superiority, which had a direct consequence in military superiority. And it was, that was largely a product of World War II, or belief that we won World War II, the United States won World War II on the basis of its technological and military supremacy. And so we if we did not maintain that technological and military supremacy, so the argument went, then the United States would lose the Cold War. So there's a sense that the kind of a, a Dewey approach to education is not going to develop the H-bomb or whatever comes next, that, that we're not going to be able to do it with whatever. The criticism, it seems, is that what progressive education had done was not allow us to make those steps forward that we needed to make in the future. That's right. So the the straw man critique is essentially that progressive education prepares you to live in the world that we already have, mm. and that what's needed is a kind of disciplined, rigorous educational system that prepares you for the world as it will be in 10 or 15 years. And if there's one thing we know, the world in 10 or 15 years is going to be far more scientific, far more technical, and very, very different than the world as it is now. So there's a sense that that we need to be we ha- we have to put education in the future tense that it's not about you know knowing a certain things that allow work now or allow us to be in the world now but uh it's connected with the vision of the future and how do we prepare for that vision of the future um, not necessarily what we can take from the past I and mean, that's a really complicated system of forward projection and then trying to prepare someone for an indeterminate future I mean that's really really interesting. Exactly right. And and it's one of the reasons why the mathematicians involved wanted to de-emphasize mathematics as a set of facts. 
because they didn't know what facts would be most useful 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the future. And so by thinking of mathematics as a way of thought, as a, as a rigorous, disciplined way of approaching complex problems, then you might be able to train people to figure out whatever technical information they're going to need 5, 10, 15 years down the road, but you've prepared them to face the, the so-called modern world, the complex technological world uh, that, that they spoke of um, in such worried tones in the late 1950s. Uh, one of the interesting things was that, that thinking about preparing for the future and thinking about we don't know the questions we'll have, so we can't give you the answers to the questions because we don't know what they'll be, but we want to plan you, you know, prepare you to be able to answer questions more generally. But they recognized that that would take a hit in kind of computational skill in the short term, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone understood this. This is one of the things I think that is widely misunderstood about the new math is that people... Uh, later on made the claim, and I think in, in many ways spuriously, but later on the claim was made that the new math hurt computational ability and that somehow this was a major criticism of the new math. But the people designing the new math knew that, of course, if your measure of knowledge of mathematics is performance on rote, memorized, uh, drill-based mathematics exams, then yes, that your ability to do that kind of mathematics would go down. But the designer of the new math, at least SMSG's version of the new math, Edward Beagle, uh, made it clear that one of the options you have is just to spend a few minutes every day drilling students. If you want them to be good at drilling, then what you should do is drill them on the various math uh, problems that you want them to know how to do. But that that wasn't fundamentally what mathematics was about. That mathematics needed to be about a way of thought, an approach to problem solving, a set of, of rigorous examples and techniques that would enable you to solve whatever problem came your way, not just the potted problems, say the odd numbers in the book, that kind of classic uh, a problem that's assigned in mathematics classes. So we have work, there's money coming in from the federal government, they have a, what seems to be a fairly clear research agenda of what they want to do, and, and how is it received when it's launched? It's received very, very well. Uh, it's widely hailed as a solution. So from both ends of the spectrum. So you have Chamber of Commerce, which explicitly points to it. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce points to the new math as one of the few federal initiatives that they're happy about when it comes to education. You have uh, Max Rafferty, the head of uh, education in California, and he's pointing to the new math as this is the wave of the future. And then, of course, a lot of the reformers, the elite reformers um, like James Conant and similar, and, and his grouping, I should say, who have long been interested in making schools more rigorous, they also point to the new math as the example of how when working with mathematicians and teachers alongside each other in an attempt to develop a rigorous uh, educational curriculum, that this is what it should look like. And so for them, at least, it's, it's widely successful and widely hailed as uh, the wave of the future. To the extent to which there's criticism, it's typically that teachers are not as prepared for these kinds of textbooks as they might be. And so the criticism is more a criticism of of rollout, of speed, and less a criticism of the content itself. Of course, there are some people who are unhappy with the content, but it really is widely hailed as uh, a new and good and improved system of education. Well, I mean, that uh, that's almost surprising because I think most, not maybe not most, but many people think of new math almost as a punchline. So how did that turn? Absolutely. New math is perhaps the punchline. Accusing somebody of doing new math is widely understood nowadays to be uh, essentially synonymous with fuzzy math or a, a kind of invented math or a choose-your-own-adventure math. <laughs> uh, and, and that's not at all what, what the curriculum was actually like or how it was received at the time. And one of the arguments I want to make is that that transition, the kind of anti-new math uh, faction only emerges in any real form much, much later. But you have initial testing and, and development of the textbooks in the late 1950s, initial deployment in the early 1960s. By the mid-1960s, the new math really is reaching its, 
its peak in, in a lot of ways in terms of uh, public attention to it and the number of new textbooks that are appearing. Uh, and then really it, it starts to change, uh, the public opinion I should say, starts to change only in the early 1970s. Now there's always people who are discontented, of course. There's always uh, mathematicians who are uh, particularly unhappy in some cases about the portrayal of their subject by the writers for School Mathematics Study Group. But the real transition occurs in the 1970s, and that's where all of a sudden new math is now an overreach of the liberal 1960s. Now the new math is has become emblematic of a kind of anti-rigorous, anti-discipline, anti-conservative uh, viewpoint of mathematics, all the things that less than 20 years ago it was thought of. So, I mean, it seems like there's a criticism uh, that the kids can't, I remember in the kind of like Johnny, why Johnny can't add, there was this kind of outrage at the lack of computational skills of kids. Mm -hmm. And that seems like that was baked into the original premise. And it seems so strange that that's a weapon then used to attack it when the people who, who I think were pushing the new math would have said, yes, that's going to happen. But but that's going to be okay because it'll it'll work itself out, or there's easy ways to address it. Like it seems to be like the concession that that this computational skill will go down was made at the outset, and then at the end, it's it's when it's being attacked, it's like it's a no one saw this coming, an unforeseen circumstance. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's one of the reasons why I I think of this transition as more of a political transition than than it is say a transition in uh, the efficacy of the curriculum. So it's what changes is, first of all, not the fact that learning math counts as learning to think. That, that maintains throughout the period, and indeed, as, as I mentioned before, it's much older than that, and it's still with us in many ways. So that doesn't change. But what changes is the kind of thinking that mathematics should cultivate. And so if you have, in the late 1950s, if you want to think of it as a flexible uh, innovative, creative kind of mathematical thinking that's, of course, still based in sets and based in, in rigorous mathematical definitions. By the early 1970s, what counts as rigorous thinking, at least insofar as mathematics class, is, is much different. It's being promoted now as a set of facts, a set of drills, being able to have rapid recall, a, a very much a traditional kind of mathematical knowledge, at least they call it traditional in this way. So you move from having a, a modern mathematics, which is what all the textbooks are hailed as, this is modern mathematics, to a mathematics that's actually seen as quite traditional. And in both cases, learning math counts as learning to think, and debates about the math curriculum are debates about how we should train citizens to think. But the big distinction is that there's a change in, in the view of how citizens should be taught to think. And that the idea of kind of rote memorization itself is a kind of a display of brain power and almost athletic ability, right? That it's, a, it's the ability to put in a lot of miles running. It's an ability that your mind can do the hard work of sitting down and memorizing something and then being able to have instantaneous recall of it. And that's seen as a, as a strength. That's right. And, and that's, a, that's not invented in the 1970s, I should make clear, that the idea of calculational genius or calculational ability goes back much, much further than the 20th century. But one of the things that gets tied up with that idea is that this is the kind of mathematics that the teachers had learned. It's the kind of mathematics that grandparents had learned. In other words, it's a mathematics based in an idea of tradition, an idea of received wisdom and frankly, a kind of mathematics that's based more in local knowledge and layperson knowledge than it is in elite knowledge. And so one of the transformations that I trace is that the idea that we should hand over control of the mathematics curriculum to elite academic mathematicians ceases to be as compelling by the early 1970s. And so part of the problem is that computational skills go down, but a much bigger problem is that why 
is that the viewpoint changes to why should we allow these weird-looking, strange mathematical problems to appear in our textbooks when what I did was learn math in this way, and it certainly worked for me. It turned me into the kind of person uh, that I am today, and that's the kind of thing I want to pass on to my children or to my students. Right, and so it fits into a, a long you know, series of debates in American history over, over expert culture, over the epistemology of, of who's in control, who's out, able to decide what has the cultural authority to speak, and whether it's academics or the federal government or local. There's a lot of elements here. Do you think that, that kind of stepping out a little broader, that the, the school curriculum is a, is, a, is a good place to see these political debates? Is it a unique window that we, we can see things here um, in a particularly clear way? I'm not entirely sure about its uniqueness, but I think it's it's a really privileged window at, at a minimum where abstract concepts, things like intellectual discipline or Western values are made absolutely concrete, that when you're designing textbooks, you have to actually write down what you want the teacher to do, what you want the students to do, the kinds of problems students should be able to answer. And so one of my hopes is that historians, intellectual historians, political historians don't ignore the elementary or secondary curriculum just because the subjects are different, say, the same questions about what counts as intellectual knowledge, what counts as expertise, who are the arbiters of, of these things. Those are actually hashed out in the, in the math curriculum or in the social studies curriculum or in the literary or literature curriculum. So I think, I think that's absolutely part of what I want want to promote here is this idea that treating the schools as a place where everything is dumbed down and therefore you can learn nothing about these big questions is the wrong way to think about it, that the schools provide a way into these otherwise totally ungrounded and abstract questions of, say, intellectual discipline or values or what counts as an, as an educated citizen. What happened to the, to the new math? I mean, uh, so the new math, there's pushback in the 1970s. Is it replaced and, and what replaces it? Does, does it still continue today? Are there still aspects of it? I mean, so we've, you've traced this kind of, this creation, this rollout, this, you know, response against it. How does it play out? Well, in some sense, the new math is always with us, I suppose. Uh, and, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that uh, textbooks change much more slowly uh, than most people realize. And so there's vestiges of the new math absolutely in today's textbooks. So, so that's, that's one way in which it's true. An, another way in which it's true is that the new math was, was never as extensive as its promoters hoped or its detractors feared. That schools, the vast majority are small, the vast majority do not have funds to update their textbooks very regularly. And so in many cases, schools would only be getting new math textbooks a decade or so after the most progressive, the richest schools would have gotten the textbook. So it, the rollout in, it can be very delayed depending on local circumstances. But then there's uh, another aspect, and, and that is the perhaps inevitably cyclical nature of educational reform. So within a couple years after the new math controversy largely died down, there's a brand new controversy over the role of electronic calculators and handheld calculators in the classroom. And it's in some ways depressingly the same debate largely about the role of memorized knowledge, the role of creativity, the role of application, the role of purity, all these kinds of, of ideas get rolled into the debate about how and whether we should use electronic calculators. And then a few years after that, in the mid to late 1980s, you have a new debate about the National Council of Teachers Mathematics Standards, what becomes known as the math wars, the original math wars, in some sense, although you could very easily trace the math wars back to the new math or very easily trace it back to the early part of the century if, if you were so inclined. But the so-called math wars uh, with the standards that were released in 1989. And then very soon after that, you have the Common Core curriculum that we're still dealing with. So in, in, in every case, I think you have very similar uh, terms of the debate that are being staked out. And in some sense, it's, it's, 
it's a little bit of a false dichotomy that I was presenting earlier. No one really believes that technical education is ever just about memorization or just about creativity and problem solving. Of course, there's always some memorization in order to be able to problem solve. So in, in some ways, the, the cycle continues, uh, and, and certainly the debates are continuing to be very, very vehement, and, and the rhetoric is, is, is intense, but the terms of the debate haven't shifted much um, over the last 70 years. I mean, I get looking at at this kind of history and the 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 kind of cyclical nature of it. Are there are there lessons that you see in the people who introduced the new math of things that they did well, mistakes they've made that have either been perpetuated by later reforms or um, that people learned from? I mean, was there a was there something about the rollout in because in the nineteen sixties it seemed so successful. Was there some mistake they made in, in, in rolling out the reform? I mean, was there if the new math failed, or and it you know it, it seems like it's it's a, that's a hard question to answer because what success or failure is hard to define, and what the new math is is hard to define. But is there something about this particular reform effort that it did particularly well or particularly badly to set up this kind of acceptance and then rejection, or is it? these things are inside of political debate that is they are largely at the mercy of well maybe one way to approach that that question is to recognize what this did to the participation of professional mathematicians in these curriculum debates because that has never been to the same extent ever since and so one of the consequences perhaps or one of the aspects that is is most consequential for us in, in terms of thinking of the early 21st century is that mathematicians never again were as involved as a profession, as a, as a unified or semi-unified profession in determining what the school curriculum should be. And partly this was as a result of the wide participation of professors of education, of educational researchers, and it really inaugurated a field of study of what makes the curriculum effective in, in the mathematics world, what makes uh, a curriculum ineffective. And so one of, the, one of the forgotten initiatives that they inaugurated was a longitudinal study to try and figure out what happens over time with various curricula. And so that aspect of the new math in some ways was very, very successful in spawning an industry of trying to think about math reform, even as it was very unsuccessful in convincing people that they were moving towards a better solution or, or a better approach to mathematics education. So that's one, one aspect of the, of, of the problem that, that goes alongside this, this involvement of professional mathematicians that you see some professional mathematicians involved today, but nowhere near the same kind of, of depth of involvement where the top mathematicians at the University of Chicago, Yale, Harvard, Princeton are all involved intimately with curriculum reform in the late 1950s. And that just simply um, is not the case today. Now, do you think that has to do with federal money or the Cold War moment or some other factors that, that, that aren't exactly clear? I, I think it's a confluence of a number of factors. One is certainly the money that the, the NSF is paying salary and a half. Mm. <laughs> and salary and a half sounds very good yeah. for summertime work. Uh, so I'm sure that's part of it. And, but another part of it is is what I think of as an aspect of the so-called liberal consensus, that actually scientific elites, the knowledge of scientific elites is important enough to be brought to everyone else, that when you learn school science and mathematics, you should be learning it as the elites see it. You shouldn't be learning a, a different version or a dumbed-down version. You should be learning it in the way that the academic elites see the field. And so that, that was so uh, intertwined with the development of the new math, that in fact a successful curriculum would present mathematics, quote, as it really was, or as the, 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 the academics saw it, or at least some academics saw it, <laughs> who were involved in the writing of the textbooks. And so that, that becomes a, a, a claim that involves all mathematicians of the period to try and really hash out what that might mean and what that might look like. 
And that is not the moment we live in now. And by and large, I, I see it as a consequence of the transition, uh, largely the same transition that, that affected the new math, where this kind of elite academic knowledge is, is mocked eventually as out of touch with what the American populace needs. And so by 1975, 1976, it's, it's commonplace to hear the fact that what goes on in the halls of academia are precisely what shouldn't go on in Omaha or in uh, Oklahoma, even those Omaha and Oklahoma 15 years earlier may have been on the cutting edge of adopting textbooks, uh, which, which uh, promoted themselves as tied into the latest mathematical research. Well, I, I, that is it. I mean, you're, you're certainly making a strong case for the ability that being able to look at this debate you're talking about, which can seem, I think, to some readers, the new math, you know, somewhat esoteric, is really locked into such bigger cultural changes. Um, you know, and I also thought that you're right, that this this discussion about math crystallizes something that, that I had been thinking about, and it seems to echo so much with, and again, historians are particularly passionate about thinking about ourselves, um, you know, the, the debate over history, right? This debate over that's going on with AP and other curricular reforms, which is learning to think like a historian or learning to master a particular set of facts, and that's your history knowledge. And, and this debate over... Um, do we want to teach a methods-based history curriculum that is less about memorizing, you know, particular facts that someone may think everyone needs to know? This debate seems to be with us in almost exactly the form you talk about in the 1960s about math, that, that historians often want to teach people how to think like historians. And then the criticism comes with, but you're not mentioning X, Y, Z, or kids haven't mastered this particular set of facts. And that debate that you really crystallize when you're talking about numbers and math seems to be paralleled in history. Absolutely. It's paralleled in history. There's also phonics and whole language mm. and debates in, right. in that field as well. So it's, it's I think, a general uh, problem. And one of the things that I hope the new math and, and my work with the new math has done is provide a way into how those big questions, those questions which engage us all, are visible in something so mundane as, as how you should learn 2 plus 2 equals 4. And so I think that one of the virtues in, the, of, in that sense of, the, of looking at the school curriculum historically is that you find a grounding of those questions and, and a hashing out. And I think you know, the other aspect that we haven't talked about yet is just how many people get their first political taste in PTA meetings and how many people are energized by what their children are learning or not learning and, and how that also plays into uh, the sense in which the new math is deeply political. Because whether it's a history book or whether it's a math textbook or an anthology of writers that you think is not representative of literature as such, all these things are ways in which teachers and parents become politically engaged. And indeed, a lot of the actors I'm looking at, particularly the critics of the new math, they are first uh, mobilized by going to school board meetings and then they become politically mobilized because they want to vote certain people off the school board or they want to run for school board themselves and indeed the political operatives of the early and mid and late 1970s realized that this is a, a population that has been energized over the course of the 1950s and 60s into thinking of education as something political and so uh, and, and one of the examples I'm fondest of, one of uh, Reagan's operatives uh, wants to capitalize and, and claim that Reagan is all, all Reagan's doing or one of the main things Reagan's doing is bringing the debate over basic education to the nation as a whole and returning the nation to basics, to fundamentals. And that's precisely the kind of analogy that you see here. Uh, made again and again that debates in schools, debates over curriculum, are simultaneously training grounds for and are standing proxy for debates about the direction of the nation, debates about how we should train citizens and what an educated citizenry should be. Uh, uh, having been now for about three weeks on my first 
parents' school PTA mailing list. I can tell you that this is exactly right and that um, it's interesting that I think that issues like busing and schools have long been part of our understanding of racial history in the United States. But I, I actually think that the, what you're arguing here is a place for these intellectual issues as part of an electoral, intellectual and cultural history of the United States of, of and a political awakening around intellectual and cultural debates that um, I think most people don't think about. Don't think about, while they think about a kind of a reaction against racial segregation or busing or desegregation, these kinds of issues, I think, I mean, what I saw in your piece and, and in talking to you is that, that there, Americans are deeply engaged in an intellectual and cultural exercise um, with their schools in a way that's going to reverberate throughout their entire political engagement on all kinds of issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as I said before, it's, it's not just training them to be politically engaged, but also they see politics writ large in a very grounded and consequential sense when you're looking at textbooks or when you're looking at pedagogical techniques. And so it, it, is, it is both uh, a, a way, a kind of way in, and it is, it is a, a battleground where those sorts of debates are, are hashed out. Um, but I agree with you that I think the focus, uh, at least among historians, has long been on busing, on school prayer, and on evolution. And I think that that kind of engagement can very profitably be extended to fields which claim not to be political and with fields which claim to be insulated, in fact, from these, from these political uh, beanbags are, are uh, back and forth. And so I, I think that it's very, very important and, and a great opportunity, in fact, for historians to take advantage of these documents and these historic debates that provide a way into much, much larger questions of American intellectual and cultural history. And that the idea of, of math and science, which is often seen as kind of factual and outside of the kind of cultural construction argument, is deeply embedded within it. And there's no Absolutely. way around that. It's, it's, it's very insulation mm-hmm. is a political claim about the power of, right. of those fields. And so just by thinking carefully about how those fields are simultaneously said to be crucial for the modern world and yet insulated from the politics of the modern world uh, provides you a way into thinking critically about how science and math education, especially during the Cold War, but of course both before and after the Cold War, are being mobilized as a, as a kind of argument about intellectual training, about who the scientist is, what sort of person, the embodiment of the science, whether that questions of, of gender or questions of background or culture, that all these are tied into the way in which science education is constructed and grounded in nothing, nothing so simple as a textbook. Right. And that the, the, the way that American education is structured, local elections for school boards being one of the most on-the-ground political forms we, we have, allows people on school boards to kind of directly reject the thinking and arguments of experts or the federal government in a way that they can seldom reject that power in any other place in their lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Because of the historical conditions establishing uh, the localized school system, school board elections are wonderful resources for right. thinking critically and for pushing back yeah. on, on these developments. And certainly a lot of the historiography for the rise of the right in the United States has pushed it further and further back to the 50s and 60s instead of thinking of it as a post-Watergate or as a post-Reagan phenomenon. And I think part of that that becomes very visible in the work of a number of scholars has been thinking about how people first push back in school board meetings and how people are first engaged with a, a reaction to what, what they perceive as liberal or as elite overstepping or as the uh, usurping of, 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 kind of local control or traditional knowledge and power uh, by elites. And that happens at school board election levels, or that happens at the level of districts discussing which textbooks to adopt. And there's a there's really, 
I mean, again, my perspective of having now been and now being in the school system is that there's very few places that have a more direct effect on the daily lives of how things are going to go in a household. I mean, school is a huge <laughs> factor. Um, you know, the, it, it, for those years in which students are in schools, it's a, it's a dominant factor that affects how every day goes. I mean, it really is a battleground on all Absolutely. these issues. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, math homework, one of the reasons yes, that the new exactly. math became so, so viscerally felt by critics and, and proponents alike is that you had to sit down at the kitchen table and help your child with math homework that might be in base 13 yeah, or that right. might be using set theoretic notation that you had never seen before. And there are probably very few things that are quite as demoralizing as thinking you can't do fourth grade mathematics. And indeed, one of, one of the examples I use is, is a, an article that was written in the Washington Post about a doctorate-holding chemist for the Environmental Protection Agency whose main complaint is that he couldn't do his daughter's homework, and only then did he discover that his daughter couldn't multiply 8 times 9. And so, of course, his first response was to go to the local school board and complain, but then he wrote the Washington Post, and as one reader of the Washington Post complained, more letters were printed on that controversy than on the whole failed presidential campaign of 1972. Wow. So it was was absolutely tied into people's experience in the home. And I think that's the the sense of political that I'm trying to point to. It's not just a party politics, because in fact, the party politics of education are quite complicated and cross-cutting. You can certainly be a political conservative, but an educational liberal uh, or vice versa. But it's it's the old sense of politics. It's the way you order and discipline and manage the house, the mind, the body, the polis, that all these things are tied in together, and they're tied in together in particular when you look at questions of intellectual discipline and training and the question of an educated citizen through the math curriculum. I mean, I don't want to push you too far in any direction you haven't spent time thinking about, but I mean, I do feel like as you just kind of described that psychodrama of the the intellectual usurpation of the of the parent right who is sitting down with third grade homework and having to look at their child and go I have no idea what my 8 or 9 year old is supposed to be doing and the amount of anger that feels that what is going on down at that school absolutely absolutely and of course if you think it's due to an overinfluence of elite liberal mathematicians who have no idea what your life is like and have no idea what your school is like and, and uh, school is like and more to the point don't know what's best for you and your child then that response that that call back to tradition that call back to local authority and local power and traditional authority as opposed to this belief that the new math was a kind of elitist uh, top-down program is is very very strong uh, in the early 1970s uh, and, and even earlier in a kind of less organized way. And so that's that's absolutely one of the responses that you get to the new math is that this is this is something different and wrong. And I think that makes its early acceptance all the more amazing. The widespread promotion and widespread acceptance of the new math to the point which parents would show up at PTA meetings eager to learn the mathematics behind the new math so they could help their children with mathematics, that you would have LPs and how-to uh, pamphlets the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare put out a whole pamphlet on you and the new math, you, your child, and the new math, and trying to really think through these problems with parents. And so its initial acceptance becomes all the more telling when you, when you uh, look at its, its trajectory over the next 15 or 20 years. And that, that claim of back to basics, which is you know, to oppose the new math, is a I mean, is a phrase that's going to echo up and down cultural, intellectual, and social aspects of what's going on in American culture in a way that, that is, is really powerful and applicable in a lot of different areas. Absolutely. All the way to the fact that the Ford Motor Company has a back-to-basics ad campaign uh, in the 1970s. It becomes pervasive, this idea that what we need to do as a nation is to go back to the basics. And I think that that is a, a, a movement that is, if not driven by the new math solely, is certainly tied up and very, very uh, closely intertwined with this rise and fall of the new math story.
as we're we're closing, um, again, I, without talking about any particular curricular reform or or AP or any particular issue, I mean the issue of um, I know I see on the internet the kind of again those same postings of this was my kid's homework. What is this supposed to be? And another effort for reform. What do you see in these efforts, you know, Common Core or, or other things, in these efforts that, that you see from your work that other people who are looking at it might be missing? I mean, do you see some commonalities developing or do you have a particular insight from all of your research about, about how these debates might go in the future or, or aspects of it that you recognize that a, that a casual observer might miss? I think the debates are certainly complicated, um, and, and there's nothing there's nothing simple about educational reform. There's nothing easy about educational reform. Is is certainly one of the historical lessons that comes through most strongly. I think one of the one of my hopes for my study of the new math is that it will get people to ask different sorts of questions about current reforms. And so instead of thinking of it solely as a, should you be memorizing or should you be thinking of mathematics as a method of thought to creatively solve problems, the question really is about what sort of person do you think an educated citizen should be? And is it about singling out only the elite or is it about bringing everyone up to a certain level? Is it about a kind of certain people get certain kinds of education and others get other kinds of education? Is it is it a question of what is our conception of, of what it means to think well, to think rigorously in 2014? And I think these questions are ultimately political questions. They're questions that have a deep basis in how we think about ourselves and our world and have a deep basis in our understanding of how best to navigate that world. And so instead of thinking of them purely, um, although this isn't unimportant, but instead of thinking of them purely as a should a student be learning uh, rote memorization or a different kind of of, from a different sort of textbook, we should perhaps think of them as questions about what sort of person is, is meant to be, result from this system of education, what sort of person is supposed to come out of it. And I think that those are ways of asking the broader questions by reference to the, the more limited questions will, will enrich in our public discourse and debate about the future of educational reform. Well, I can't thank you enough for... Um opening this window and showing us uh, the ways that this discussion about math and education reform can really take us in all kinds of fascinating directions. Thank you so much for talking with us today, and thank you so much for your article, and uh, I know that the readers of the JH will enjoy it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in December for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.